We'll be back in Genesis today. We're going through this roughly one chapter at a time. And we're going to learn something today, Genesis chapter 11. And I want you to remember this because I think it's a very, very important point in the very humanist culture that we live in. And that is that there is a, quote, good, a good that is very evil and disobedient to God. Let me say that one more time. We're going to to see that in in, uh, Genesis chapter 11. There is a quote-unquote good that's very rebellious toward God. It's not good at all. looks good on the outside. And yet it's actually very wicked. It's very subtle. I'm going to have to take this off. Sorry. Too hot. That's what happens when you, you know, a little extra um, winter weight. Let's say winter weight. It's been about eight winters I think I've had it on. Or at least four or five, anyway. Winter weight. I have been losing weight, though. This, this diet's working. I'm down to a very slim, svelte 312-ish pounds. Shadow of my former self. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just a shadow. You can probably... In fact, I can't even turn sideways. I'm scared you'll lose me. So, obviously. There's a good that's very rebellious to God. There is a good that's very rebellious to God. And we live in that society today. I want to remind you of a few things that we've already gone over in Genesis, but I think it bears repeating because it bears upon directly this conversation. First is this. Every time any author introduces a character that's new to the plot, you get the, the most important characteristics so that you'll know what this character is about right there. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about biblical literature or whether we're talking about other literature. Good authors do that so that the reader knows what to expect out of this character as the plot moves forward. It's the same thing with, the, with Genesis. Genesis, the plot, the theme, the plot of Genesis is the gospel. It's the brokenness and lostness of man and God's redemptive plan to then save that lost and wayward son. Does that make sense? What is the first and primary characterization that we get of the serpent? The first time that we see... Satan, we should say the Satan, because Satan actually means adversary, but anyway, it's a side point. The first time that we see the Satan pop up in Scripture, what is his primary characteristic? Now, the serpent was more subtle. The serpent was more cunning, some Bible translations put it, than any beast of the field. I want you to realize the number one characteristic of Satan is that he's subtle. He's cunning. He's crafty. He's not obvious. He comes in a way that is sneaky. <clears throat> He's more subtle. He doesn't come with a big bass drum and lots of loud noises and flashing sirens and lights and fingers pointing. Boom, boom, I'm here to destroy your life. Boom, boom, it doesn't do that. Right? He's subtle. What does that mean? He tries to sneak in. He comes in a way that you're not expecting, if you will. That's why Paul says we're supposed to be diligent. We're supposed to be on guard. Why? Because he is subtle. And if you're not diligent, you're liable to fall prey to his traps, his snares, his lies, his deceptions. That's exactly what we're going to see in chapter 11 of Genesis. 
I want you to realize something. We're in chapter 11. We're only a few generations away from the entire earth being destroyed because of rebellion. I mean, do you think if you were sitting around, I would hope that my children, if my children were sitting around listening to me one day and I said, hey, let me tell you this story. A while back, before you were born, your mom and I were actually on a boat. We were some of only eight people that survived. The entire world was destroyed by God in a flood. And they would say, no way. Yes way, I can take you over and show you the boat, bro. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's why you'll notice our family, only family on earth. Get it? There's a reason. I would hope that they would listen and they would learn something from that. <clears throat> Just a few generations down, though, in Canaan's line, we see him name one of his children Nimrod, which means we will rebel. Bro, you didn't, you didn't learn the first time? You didn't catch this the first go-round? Do you not understand you will be destroyed? If you rebel against God, I have news for you. It does not matter whether you are, it's today or whether it's 2,000 years ago or whether it's on the ark with Noah. If you rebel against God, I promise you will be destroyed, period. The gospel is not God coming to you and just imploring you with tears, asking, please, please submit to me. The gospel is the story of a conquering king who's sending out a message. I will accept surrenders now, but when I pull my sword from the scabbard, it's going to be too late. The gospel is not a beg. It is a command. It is a command to repent. Why? Because you are faced with an overwhelming force that has, on the one hand, the ability to destroy you, and I do mean utterly destroy you. What can man do to you? Kill you? What can God do to you? Well, Jesus said, don't fear him who can destroy your body. Fear him that can destroy both your body and soul. In other words, God can destroy you, and he can put you in a place where your soul will be destroyed forever and ever and ever. You are faced with an overwhelming force. And on the one hand, he has the power to destroy you, and on the other hand, he has the power to restore you. I loved the, the, the song that we sang called The Look. In fact, I may have to look it up because I just love it so much. Here's, here's one of the reasons why I love that, by the way. Because, did you notice who wrote it? You want to know who put the words to The Look out there? Who wrote this? Here, let me read it to you. My conscience felt and owned the guilt, and it pledged, plunged me into despair. I saw his, sin, his sins, his blood had spilt. And helped to nail him there. Yet with a second look he said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Do you know who wrote that? John Newton. That's exactly right. Why should you know John Newton? Now listen, I realize that your formative years of education were free. So you may not have taken them as seriously as perhaps you should have. Okay, But John Newton someone that you should know in history whether you're a Christian or not. Why? Because John Newton pretty much single-handedly dismembered slavery in Europe. He got rid of it. The English slave trade was done away with because of John Newton, who was a very well-beloved pastor. He was a songwriter. He struggled greatly with pain and debilitating disease and yet would not give up. 
And literally, it was his dying bed that he learned that slavery had been put asunder, had been outlawed. And within, I don't know, just a couple of weeks, I believe, when, it, when he, was, he heard the news, he was dead. And I really, truly believe that part of it was when he heard that, he knew, I've done, I've kept the faith, I've fought the fight, I've done what I was here to do. God put me here to do, I've finished, I've completed my race. Why is that a big deal? Because he was a slave trader before. He was the guilty party. So I have news for you. You're confronted by the gospel just like John Newton was. Because on the one hand, God can restore you and he can make you a trophy of grace and he can utilize you, you broken wretch, to do something magnanimous and incredible for his kingdom and his glory. And on the other hand, you can go ahead and harden your heart and he'll destroy you. That is the gospel. And that's the gospel displayed in Genesis chapter 11. Let me read this. We're going to read through just verse 9. 10 through 32 is basically a genealogy. It is important. There are some great points in it. But I'm not going to spend uh, most of my time there today. I want to go talk about this tower. Here's what it says. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, and let's bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the whole face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they have all one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be held uh, withheld from them. Therefore, come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they might not be able to understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the entire face of the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. What do we know that city today as? Go ahead and say it. Yeah, Babylon. Babylon, yeah. That's Babylon. Do we know where it's at? Yeah. Yeah, it's in Iraq. In fact, the walls of the city of Babylon have actually been excavated. Um when Saddam Hussein was still running things, he wanted to go on a restoration tour. Basically, he started restoring old Babylon. And, of course, you know, every dispensational Christian on earth was like, oh, my gosh, the world is about to end. Here's Babylon the Great. Well, that might be true. Babylon the Great never needed restoring. Babylon the Great is a, a way of thinking. That's basically what's – it's an ideology. Okay. Babylon the Great is being restored right now. It's not the city. Okay? It's not the actual physical walls. It's the way of thinking. It's the way of thinking that characterized this place. And it's the way of thinking that characterizes this culture, which we are now, via the, the power of mass media, exporting to all the ends of the earth. What is the way that we think? Well, we're autonomous. Not to think I'm here to listen to anybody. I'm, I'm my own boss. I make my own rules. Who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? Who are you to tell me God's word's the standard? 
Why not me? Why can't I make my own standard? Why can't that be right? I'll make it up myself. I'll decide what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad and what's evil. Well, two things. Number one, if you think that way, you're a deluded idiot. It is philosophically unsound. I really do mean that. You're foolish. You're, you're philosophically unsound. You haven't thought that through. You cannot think without there being an ultimate standard. You can't be the standard of all things. And I'll give you a few here just in case you're a philosophy nerd like me. You can't trust your memory. You cannot independently prove that your memory is reliable. You must assume it. Well, yeah, it is. I know it is. I, I, I know my memory is reliable because last week I was trying to remember things and I remembered them. Oh, you are using your memory to attempt to justify memories of a past event? That's circular reasoning. Try again. I know my memory is good because I, I took a test last week and I remembered all the answers. I got 100. remembered all the answers. Oh, you remember Taking a test last week, you have to utilize your memory to justify your own memories. Now, here's the reason I'm saying that. You cannot independently justify anything without an ultimate standard. That's the basics of presuppositional apologetics. You must have a standard. And by the way, anybody, even if they're a classical apologist, they'll steal that because that's good apologetics. Why are things right or wrong? There is a standard. God says so. If you do not believe that, you cannot condemn any heinous act in history. What the Nazis did were wrong. Why? Well, everybody knows it's not right. Why does everybody know it's not right? Well, what they did was, it was, it was, it was heinous. It was wrong. Why? Why was it wrong? They made up a standard. Hey, we're not going to listen to anybody. We're going to make the rules. They made up a standard, and they were consistent with that standard, weren't they? If you believe that you should be able to make your own rules, you cannot condemn any heinous act of any other culture anywhere. You can't be mad when a Muslim terrorist stands up and says, I believe the Quran is right, I believe the infidels should die, I'm going to fly a jet into this building. What are you mad about? They're consistent with their standard of right and wrong. The only way you can condemn those immoral acts is when you stand up and say, I have a standard. It is an infallible guide for truth. It tells me without error what is right and what is wrong. And God says that's wrong. Yeah, but that's just a Sunday school answer. We don't do that because God says not to. Well, sometimes the Sunday school answer is the right answer. Well, it should be more complex than that. No, it's pretty childlike. It's pretty simple. We just want to sound more erudite, so we don't want to say that. Why don't you believe that? Because God's word says so. Why won't you be involved in that? Because God's word says not to be. So what? So he is the creator. He is the sustainer. And he is the judge. And one day I'm not going to answer to you. I'm not going to answer to my neighbor. It doesn't matter whether my neighbors think I'm a good guy. They don't see me in the, in the wee hours, the dark hours. They don't know everything I've done. There's one that does. And he's the one I'll answer to. The whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there and they said to one another, listen to this, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Why? The plain of Shinar is good land. I mean, it's, it's good farmland. Justin would love to own 100 acres there. You never even have to go there. If you own 100 acres, you can sell that baby. Hey, 
We're getting a new church building, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, very good land. It's very fertile land. So why wouldn't they just use stone? There's no stone available, right? Around here, you'll see a lot of rock buildings. You know why? I mean, we're right here next to a fairly small mountain range, I know, but, but we are. And there's a lot of rocky outcroppings in there. So you can just go out in the field and find rocks everywhere. So you, you're driving down the road, right? And I see this every now and again. I'll see a fence post. It's the size of this, you know, lectern up here. And it's just rocks in a big circle. And they've put, you know, wire around it. And you're like, are you serious right now? That's the fence post? Yeah, but that thing's like 3,000 pounds. It ain't moving. Pull on it all you want. Why? Because there's rocks there. Well, you can't make rocks. When you get out to western Kansas, where I'm from, you don't see a lot of rock buildings. You do see some well-preserved old sod homes. How'd you like that? What are we going to use to build? There's no trees. There's no rocks. Yeah, we'll cut big chunks of dirt and stack them. Great idea. Literally, the, the rattlesnakes come out of the walls. That's a great idea. That's a great plan. No problem there, right? Most people put their beds next to the wall. Now, I'm really serious. <laughs> really did happen. Yeah. Well, there was nothing else to build with. So they say, hey, look, let's make some bricks, right? Let's, let's use a little tar, some asphalt for mortar because they didn't have mortar because, again, not a lot of rock. Let's build a tower. Now, listen, there are three major theories about what this tower is all about, and I'll tell you the three, and then I'll tell you which one I line up with because it's the most normal reading of the text. I'm a weirdo like that. First one was, well, they had just been through the flood, we're going to make a tower, so if God floods it again, we can get away from it. That makes sense, right? kind of goes with the thinking of the time. What's the problem? Dude, you're building it in the plain. That's a valley. If you're, you know, if you're building a tower to get away from floodwaters, like, you don't go to the low spot to start your building, right? You'd go up into the hills. you go to the high places, right, and start building from there. They didn't do that. So I don't think it was that. I don't think they thought there was going to be another flood. I think they knew God gave his word. They knew he's not going to flood the earth again. The next one is, well, it's possible then that it was actually a tower used for, um, it was going to be a tower for worship. It was going to be a tower to worship heavenly celestial beings. That's possible because of the Hebrew rendering. Um, says this, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. The Hebrew doesn't even actually have that. The, the Hebrew says, let us build a tower unto heaven. So you could construe it to, to say, well, let us build a tower for the worship of the heavens or something like that. I suppose that, that's, that's a possibility. It's not as easy. on the, It still works with the grammar of the text. So, okay, I get that. Maybe. I don't think so because it's not the... The general reading of the sense of that text. Here's the third one. I, th I think this is why. I think this is what they were doing. Let's build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. In other words, let's build us a really high tower that people can see from all around. Why? Because then people will be something. We'll make something of ourselves. We will attain for ourselves the big G word. Glory. What's wrong with that? Here's what's sad. I can say that, and a lot of American Christians can listen to that and go, what's wrong with that? Because we live in a culture where going and getting glory for yourself is a big deal. In fact, you're seen as a good guy if you do that. Good for him. 
Got himself some glory. Yeah, you bet. Make a name for yourself. Make sure everybody knows you. I want to be well known and well thought of. I want to be famous. You want to glorify yourself? You're a rebel to God. You can glorify yourself or you can glorify Christ, but you can't do both. And that was the the fight that I had with college football. There's a reason I was playing college football. It's a reason I did sports in high school. I suppose maybe it started when I was a kid because I loved them. But you get a little taste of success and you start getting some awards and you think, I'm really something. It's incredible. Some high school kid, you can really think you're something because you get an award. From guys that may or may not have ever seen you play, they just see your stat line, right? Oh, this guy's a great defensive end. Dude, you've never seen me play. You've never seen a film. You just know the stats. Maybe the stat keeper was wrong. Maybe the stat keeper was my, you know, brother-in-law. That dude's got 32 sacks. He was on the, he was on the field 20 plays. Right? Maybe, maybe you fudged the numbers a little bit. The long story short is this, though. I thought, thought it was really something. I thought it was something of myself. And then I got born again and went to college. The first day that I played college football, I'd been born again for, I don't know, two or three days. And I started realizing something. This is all about me. And that's why I get mad when I don't get the playing time that I think I deserve. And that's why I get mad when I don't get the glory that I think I, I deserve. And that's why a lot of people get mad when they don't get the recognition in a church that they think they deserve. That was my struggle. Why? Because I want glory for me. Because I'm a sinful, wicked, fallen creature at heart. Yeah. And that's, that's the culture that we live in. You want to know why we have huge church buildings and we have 30 people in those church buildings? As every pastor knows, if you get a building project, you put your name on it. Yeah, you have a little concrete piece there in the, in the corner. It says, hey, this was built by Pastor so-and-so in, you know, 1982. Your name's always on there. You can bring your kids back and say, see, kids, look at that. I'm on the building. I'm dedicated. They dedicated this whole wing of the building to me. They dedicated this wing of the college to me. Look at that. Why'd they do that? Because I gave them a bunch of money. Good job. Well done. Aren't you an incredibly upright, moral creature? That's what we want. We want the applause of men. And these were the same. They want the applause of men. That will be the the struggle of your life. Do you want the applause of God, or are you more concerned with the applause of men? I know that comes out hard. Maybe I'm preaching it hard because I struggle with the same thing day to day. And it's a day-by-day thing, by the way. Some days I get home and I'm like, right on. The Lord was powerful and I was crucified today. And some days I get home and I go, wow, the flesh was powerful. I feel like I re-crucified Christ today. Who's going to get the glory? Someone will get glory for your life. Who will it be? Are you more concerned about Christ? Bringing glory to God, making his name great? Or are we more concerned that people know who we are? I want them to know me, Paul Wilson. I want them to think I'm whatever, smart and handsome. I mean, they can't help but think that, right? I mean, who couldn't love a face like this as long as they were blind? I've got a face for radio. I've been told that before. you got a voice for radio. i got a face for it, too. It's perfect. It's a good match. No, do I want people to know who I am, or am I more concerned that they know Christ? I think that's a major hindrance for us sharing the gospel. 
I think the vast majority of the time when we are scared to share the gospel, it is because we have an overriding fear of man. I care what they think about me more than I care about their eternal soul. That's sad to say, but that's true. And I've been there. And I think if you were willing to be honest, you have too. I know I should talk to this person. Man, it's going to be awkward. I don't know how to approach it. I'll do it next week sometime. Right? Maybe tomorrow. Oh, man, that, that function, that one thing's coming up. You know, we're going to have that you know, the whole, you know, whole group picnic. Thing. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to them then. I'll kind of get them away by themselves and talk to them then. And you know what? It never comes. The opportunity never comes. You're looking, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking for the opportunity. It just never comes. Can I ask you a question? Let's just pretend, I don't know, the person that you just grew up loving. Let's pretend that you all love your mothers because I hope you all love your mothers, even if your mother was a little vindictive towards you as you were growing up or something. Let's pretend it was your mom. For me, it was my grandparents. And she didn't know Christ. And you're praying and praying, Lord, send someone to tell her the gospel. Because let's say you're like me and you you live down here and you're not up in western Kansas all the time. First of all, it should be you taking the gospel. But what if you were praying, Lord, send somebody to share the gospel with my, my family. Send somebody to share the gospel with my brother or my mom. My sister, whom I love, sends somebody to share the gospel. And the Lord puts somebody in their path. And that somebody just doesn't have the strength because they don't want to offend them. Would you be thankful for that? I dare say, I'll bet it'd be the other way around. When you're thinking about the salvation of the people that you love, You'd say, God, put, put that crazy Jesus freak out there who doesn't care what anybody thinks. And even if it makes the, the, you know, the, the relationship and the conversation awkward, they're willing to do it. They're willing to do it lovingly. They're willing to share it in such a way that it's palatable so they're not just you know, making them mad and shooing them off. But they're willing to put their heart out on the line to share the gospel with them. Lord, please send somebody like that. Would that be you? Be my prayer. Been my prayer. I can't tell you how many times I've shared the gospel with one of my brothers and nothing. And pray and pray and pray and share the gospel and nothing. Do you know what I pray? God, please send somebody to share the gospel with my brother. Send somebody into his life. They'll care more about the gospel than they will about his relationship. You know, a lot of people want my brother to like him. He's a very wealthy guy. He's a very powerful guy. If he likes you, he can get you places. He's that guy that knows everybody. He doesn't like you, he can make sure you don't get into places. And a lot of people are so intimidated by that, they don't want to make him mad. They don't want to upset him. He can't spend that money in eternity. I hope the Lord will send someone who will care more about his soul than they care about his money. Sorry for the rabbit trail. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us build ourselves a city. Not let us build the Lord a city. Not let us care about the Lord's glory. Not let us care about the Lord's renown. Let us build for ourselves this city. Let us make ourselves a name. Let us be great. And that's the message that I have for you today out of Genesis chapter 11. Look at your heart. Does it care whether the Lord is made greatly of or does it care whether you are made greatly of? Asterisk, caveat, 
I am not saying it is bad, evil, wicked to have great goals. I'm not saying it's evil or wicked to decide, you know what? The Lord's given me a lot of talent in X, Y, Z area. I'm going to fulfill that. I'm going to be a doctor one day. Or like my brother, I'm going to be a, you know, a CEO of a, a bank. It's not bad to be that. What is bad is when you utilize that for your own glory rather than the kingdom of God. The question of your life is who will it glorify? And we will say all the time, I want my life to glorify God. The question I have is, do we really? Do we really? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. In other words, they're united in their rebellion. They're united in their wickedness. They're united in their rejection of God. You you ever seen a culture like that? Sure you have. You're living in it. When I go to the science teacher convention, how many people do you think are going to stand up with me when I proclaim God's word on creation? It's a minority. Like a minority of one. I can remember being at a science teacher convention, National Science Teachers Convention, and uh, I guess it was Fort Worth, like 8,000 science teachers, 8,500 science teachers. That's a lot of science teachers. By the way, if you'd like to see the weirdest people in all of creation, come on down. Science teachers. I mean, I am probably the most socially well-adjusted of that entire crowd, 8,500, okay? And you all know me. (laughs) Sometimes I'm not that socially well-adjusted. Yeah. And when I talk to people about creation and I talk to people about the Lord... I don't get a lot of traction a lot of times at those events. But you know what? Maybe God didn't send me there for 8,500 teachers. Maybe he sent me there for one. Maybe what I say will change one. Is that enough? Is that enough that the Lord would use you to change one life? You know, sometimes we think, well, it's, you know, it's only one person or two. I mean, it's not a big deal. God's not even using I'm not even making an impact. Yeah, David was, was with a few little sheep. When David went out to battle with Goliath, that's what his brother said. Hey, where'd you leave those few little sheep? In other words, where'd you leave your, uh, you know, your responsibilities, you insignificant little plebe? Why should, why should that make me mad? Well, you aren't influencing very many people, so what? The Lord's not going to judge me on whether I influence very many people. He's going to judge me on whether I've been faithful with what he gave me. I'm okay to be faithful with a few. Because Christ said, he who's faithful with few is also faithful with many. And he who's faithful in little is faithful in much. And I want to be found faithful. I don't have to be the next John MacArthur. I just have to be faithful where God's put me. God, let me be found faithful. Let me be found faithful to my wife. Let me be found faithful to my children. Let me be found a faithful witness in my work. Let me be found faithful to the kids that you put into my classroom. Let me be found faithful to my brothers and sisters in the church. Let me be found faithful in those few little things that you've sent me to do. That one day I can lay down and I can say I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Right? I've done what I was put here to do and I've been faithful. It might not have been much, but I was faithful in it. That should be our heart's posture. So let us go down and confuse their language that they might not understand one another's speech. And the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. 
And therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Now, I want you to realize something. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, just give you a few points of teaching before we go. Number one, why would God be mad that they settled down to, to build a city? What did he tell them to do? Spread out. Cover the whole earth. Let me just go back here. 9 verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Those are commands, by the way. Be mad at me later. And fill the earth. What did they do? The exact opposite. What does our culture do? The exact opposite. Be fruitful. Multiply. Have children. They're a burden. You have lots of kids. You can't buy the cool things you want to buy. Hey, kids are expensive. I've heard, I, can't, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that. Well, you know, kids are expensive. You're kidding. Feeding someone's expensive? Well, I did not know. So glad you brought that to my attention. You guys had three. This was, the, this was literally something that I was told. I won't say who to protect the guilty. We had three kids in basically three years. Do you know how expensive that's going to be when they get to be teenagers? Yeah. I'm not a small guy. I'm pretty sure the boys will eat when they get to be teenagers. Yeah, they're going to be expensive. Do you realize my God is who provides all my needs? I'm sorry that you think children are such a, a burden that you don't want to have any. And by the way, if you have too many kids, I mean, you can't buy the big house. And you can't have the fancy car. Yeah, but you can raise disciples. You can raise young men and women to love Christ and to go boldly into a culture that wants to turn us back. To be salt, to be light. You know, then you can't have the, the big car. So what? I don't care about the big car. You, I mean, you can't have the really nice house. You can't live out in the hills, you know. So what? I don't care. You can't take it with you. Is the big car going to make that big a deal? People going to like you because of it? I mean, if somebody likes you because of the car you drive, do they really like it? Is that kind of friend you want anyway? Yeah, they're a blessing. Children are a blessing. Spread out. Multiply. Fill the earth. And what did we do? Nope. You hold it. We'll talk later. Um, what did we do? We did exactly the opposite of that. And we still do today, by the way. We live in Babylon the culture, not Babylon the city. We live in Babylon the culture. God had told them, I want you to spread out. I want you to fill the whole earth, which is part of taking dominion. Okay, there are parts of creation that we, okay, all of creation we're told to take dominion on. There are parts of creation where dominion has not been taken because there are literally not enough people there. You with me? Okay, there are places in India where tigers kill people a lot. There were places in the U.S. where bears killed people. If you get enough people in one region, they don't do that. Why? Because we take dominion over it. That's part of it. When was the last time somebody was killed by a bear in Ada? You do not get to use you know, the Winniewood Animal Park in this, okay? <laughs> it's been a long time, hasn't it? Yeah. It has been. So what makes the radical environmentalist movement so sinful? Because it's not part of God's command. Yes, he tells us to take dominion. 
He tells us to be good stewards, and I'm not discounting that. But he also tells us to take dominion. And if there is an animal that is threatening the life of a human, the human's life is infinitely more valuable. If Harambe is threatening the life of a child, the child is more valuable. I like to make Harambe jokes. I still do. I'm sorry. I've got a little poster thing on my wall that says it's got the God's not dead, but it's Harambe. Harambe's not dead. You know, the guys, yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry to be like that. But the truth of the matter is the kid's life's more valuable. Why? Because the kid is made in the image of God. The gorilla's not. The kid is made in the image of God. The tiger's not. The kid is made in the image of God. The dog is not. You with me here? Yeah. It's made in the image of God. Let's go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. <laughs> I chuckle when I read that because I think, well, that happens in marriage even if you have the same language. That's incredible. I don't understand your speech. What do you mean by that? <laughs> What's wrong, babe? Nothing. I don't, I, I'm not understanding your speech, right? <laughs> she said nothing, but I don't think she meant that. Works the same way for girls, too, right? What do you think about? Nothing. I'm going to bed. What's he thinking about? What is he really thinking about, though? He said nothing, and he's going to bed. This is something with the bed. I didn't make the bed. Something about, I should have got this other sheet. No, I, oh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I shouldn't have tucked the bed. For me, I, I hate the covers being tucked in because I'm too long. I'm sure that would be one of those things. Oh, I tucked the covers in. What, what did he mean by that? He, he meant nothing. I'm, I'm going to bed. That's what I meant. <laughs> we have confused language and speech, even if we have the same language. He confused their language and their speech. Now, listen. Here's why this is important. Here's why. That's where the races come from. Where do the races of people come from? Well, at the split up, which we talked a little bit, we got into a little bit last time in, in Genesis chapter 10, with the split up of the earth, right? In the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. That's what it's talking about. If God comes down and confuses the language, if there's only 10 people, if, if, you, if we're in Ada today, right, and we're at work or we're at church, and all of a sudden there's some great event, and I can, I, nobody can understand my language now. They're all speaking different languages. What am I going to be doing? I'm going to be going around yelling, trying to find out if anybody can understand English. I think, this is personally my belief, I know, I this is an argument from silence, I can't prove it. But I think, because of the way that God works, and because of the high priority he puts on covenant, I think probably those people were then able to understand each other's language by family. In other words, husband and wife can understand each other, but all of a sudden your pals can't. Maybe even your cousins can't, or whatever. What would you do if only 10 people knew English? Well, guess what? You've got a new friend group, don't you? We, we aren't hanging out with the people that know Chinese. I mean, that, that's just too much, dude. Okay, maybe Spanish a little bit. Hey, what about ALS? I don't know if that really counts as a language then. All right, but, or ASL. Yeah, ASL. ALS would not be a language. ALS would be a disease. That would be, that would be bad. Everybody else is speaking languages. This guy, that's tough stuff. Poor guy, his family got it. He got the short end of the stick. No, what, what happens? You, you start hanging out with those people, okay? And you move off to different places together. You know what's going to happen? You're basically forming early tribes or clans, a tribal culture. And that means you're going to have very distinct genetic markers as well, okay? You have a bunch of people. They move up into the Caucasus Mountains. Guess what they find out? 
The kids with the lighter skin make it, and the kids that don't have the lighter skin don't. Why? They can't absorb enough vitamin D. They get rickets. In that day and age, something like that would be deadly. You got rickets, you couldn't support your family. You sure can't, you know, you can't go out and plow. It's not like today, right? I could have rickets and go plow today because I just get in the tractor. <laughs> no problem, right? Maybe. Depending on how bad it was, I suppose. They wouldn't make it. Same thing happens. You have a bunch of people that move off to Equatorial Guinea. They move somewhere where the sun is out a long time every day, and the days are very long. What happens if your skin's really light there? <laughs> You're going to cook. That's what's going to happen. You're not going to make it. You're going to have skin cancer. Pretty soon, you have people from those different regions that look distinctly different from each other, don't they? The Greeks have a certain look. right? The, the Persians have a certain look. right? The Carthaginians... And other Africans have a certain look. You with me here? Where did the races come from? That's where the races came from. They did not come from evolving from separate populations. They didn't come from 50,000 proto-humans all coming out of, you know, the monkey stage or the ape stage. No, they came from one family. They came from a family that basically broke up by tribe. And I'm going to tell you something. Because of that, tribalism is incredibly deeply ingrained into our nature. People are tribal by nature. By the way, Christ commands us to be tribal. It's just that our tribalism is supposed to be by ideology, not look. We're supposed to look out for those who are of the household of faith. Right? Why is tribalism so deeply ingrained? Well, if you're in that kind of culture and you had somebody like Nimrod, do you think you'd have to band together to hold them off? Yeah, you would. You're darn right you would. Obviously, some of them couldn't. Nimrod took over Asher, the city, founded Assyria, Assyria, the Assyrians. He was a military conqueror. You would have to band together. What's the easiest way to know if someone's from your clan? The way they look. They don't look like our family. right? In Scotland, where my family is originally from, they actually have cloth. right? It's called tartan cloth. You have specific kinds of weaves of different colors, and that represents your family. You'd actually have that cloth made into a sash. So when you come into town, people know, oh, oh, you're a part of this clan. You're a part of that clan. They know what clan you belong to. Why? Because they know there's someone else looking out for you other than just yourself. You're not a loner. You have to, don't mess with me. I'm part of a, group, a bigger group. Listen, you have the same thing today. You have something else that covers you. You have a robe of righteousness. It's been dipped in the blood of the king. You belong to a group as well. That group is called the church. You belong to a group of people that are supposed to look after each other as if they were your own blood. Remember the saying, right? Blood's thicker than water. Which means you're supposed to like side with your family over your wife. By the way, if you do that, you have disobeyed Christ. Blood is not thicker than water unless that blood is the blood of the king. Metaphorically speaking. Blood's thicker than water. No. Christ's word is thicker than that. Therefore the name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And that has some consequences that we're going to talk about. The long story short is this. They were given a command from God. They chose to rebel. God forced them to obey his command anyway. 
Here's the cliff notes. God's doing the same thing today. When he says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, it will. And it may be voluntarily and it may not be. But it will bow. Your knees will bow. Your tongue will confess. The question is whether it will confess in humble repentance or whether it will confess because it's forced to. Whether it's the confession of a conquering king. He's not returning as the lamb, folks. He's returning as the lion. There's other stuff I'd like to get into. I'm not going to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises you give us. I thank you that you're willing to adopt a wretch like me. That you're willing to put your righteousness on me. Because I'm undeserving of it. Father, deliver us from self-righteousness. We think we're so good. I'm a good person. And we're not. We're wicked. We like to do our own thing. We disobey you at every turn. Father, I ask, give us hearts of repentance. We can turn away from our own righteousness and turn toward you. Show us your word, Lord. Show us that it's true. Remind us, God, that it's more important for us to speak your word and your gospel than it is how people think of us. Let us not be like Nimrod, Lord, but let us be like your son. I thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray.